0: All right, I want to invite our children to uh, be dismissed to Transformation Station. So, uh, actually going to meet in the back today with Miss Julie. Uh, She's going to take you down by uh, the elevator today. So, we're going a new route. Um, Come back in. Paul? Is that Paul or Sam? That was Paul, I think. All right. Good. So, um, yeah, I want to say just a public thank you very quickly to all of our children's workers. Uh, many of us kind of don't realize all that goes into the work in our children's ministry, but uh, Jessica and Carrie and many others have done a great job uh, since we you know got everything rolling in April. And so just want to say a public thank you to them really, really quickly. And, and the many of you that either are starting to help and maybe applied to help in our, with our children. And then those of you that will help one day, let me just go and say thank you for Uh, that in advance, hint, hint, Um, all right, if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians 2, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 22 this morning, so if you're using the Bibles we provided for you, that's on page 976, last week we launched our We Are the Church series, and we defined a church very simply as a community of disciples. And we know that the early church, they they preached Christ. They spoke of His death on the cross, His glorious resurrection. And through belief in Him, through repentance and faith in Christ, that we can become part of this community of disciples. And last week we looked at what is the church to be devoted to. In Acts 2, at the end of the chapter, it spells it out for us. We're to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And so... This morning, we're going to drill down on this idea of devoting ourselves to fellowship. Another way to say is that we belong together as the church. We are to do life together. In every way that we can work that out, the church is a united community of disciples. To begin our time this morning, I want you to listen to this quote from Charles Bridges. He was a 19th century British pastor, and he says this about the church. Such a strong statement. The church is the mirror that reflects the whole effulgence of the divine character. It is the grand scene in which the perfections of Jehovah are displayed to the universe. Let me hit that one more time. The church is the mirror that reflects the whole effulgence of the divine character. It is the grand scene in which the perfections of Jehovah are displayed to the universe. Are you tracking here with bridges? I mean, I know he uses some archaic words. Effulgence, what on earth is that? Like the first time I read that, I had to go dictionary.com. Help me out here. Effulgence is, is radiance. It's a brilliant radiance. And so Bridges says that the church is like a mirror that is to reflect the radiance of the character of God. Even more than that, that we as the church have this opportunity to, with our lives, we as, remember, the church is not a building, it's not a social club, it is the people of God. We collectively, as the people of God, have opportunity to reflect the glory of God to the world. This is what Bridges was saying. So local churches, just like this one. A local church is a group of people who share a common Lord, a common faith, a common baptism, a common mission and vision. A local church is to display the glory of God. And then collectively, the universal church, that is all believers in every place at all times, we too are to collectively reflect the glory of God with our lives. Far too often though we know that rather than reflecting and displaying the greatness and the glory of God, we oftentimes distort His glory. We misrepresent His glory. We leave people confused as to what exactly is this God, who is this God that these people claim to worship? When We see sin and scandal in the church pretty consistently, do we not? We see that people who claim to know Christ disregard him all throughout their week after they meet together on Sundays. We hear charges that the church is full of hypocrites. People think that the church just exists to rob people of their joy by being a place that gives a lot of do's and don'ts. But this isn't Jesus' intention for his church, is it not? I mean, Jesus wants his church to be this place that, in the words of Ephesians three ten, our memo verse from last week, it is the place where the manifold wisdom of God. Is now made known. And so the question is can we be this kind of church? Will Redemption Hill Church, right here in Medford, Massachusetts, full of people all over Greater Boston, will we reflect the glory of God? I hope that answer is yes. Is certainly possible to us. God has given us Christ. He's given us His Spirit to live out our faith so that we can reflect His glory to a watching world. So how do we get there? Well, I think it's essential, absolutely essential, that we understand who we are as a church and what God has done for us in the gospel of His Son. If we get that, then we will start to work out all the practical implications of what it means to be the church and I know a few passages greater than the one we're gonna look at this morning and study so let's read the first three verses verses 11 through 13 of Ephesians 2 and 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 here's the here's the point here is the 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 key uh, message from this passage this morning and that is this that the gospel creates a new community of united disciples who belong to God and one another. I mean, that's what we're going to see. Before we read the passage, I just want you to get that. The gospel creates a new community of united disciples who belong to God and belong to one another. That's what you're going to see all throughout these verses. So let's check these first three here. Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, So in these three verses, we we find our first truth this morning, and and that is this, that the gospel saves us from spiritual isolation. The gospel saves us from spiritual isolation. You you see that first word in verse 11, it says, therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, we need to to, to note, why is, is it there? What has he talked about in the previous verses? And in Ephesians 2, we have some of the most important verses in all of the Bible. Paul, in verses 1-3 through 3 of chapter 2, gives us our state, our spiritual condition, apart from Christ. He says, you are dead in your sins and trespasses. You followed the course of this world. You live for yourself. Even the prince of the power of the air, Satan. And you were separated from God. But then in verse 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It's not your own doing. It's not of works, so that no one can boast before God. And then in verse 10, he says, Look, even beyond that, we are God's workmanship now, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So this this is where we were apart from Christ. This is where we are now. This is where we're going now that we're a new creation in Christ. Some of the most important verses in all of Scripture. But then now, in verse 11, in light of this great salvation that God has brought us, what else is true for us as the people of God, those who have been saved by grace? And this is what Paul begins to unpack in verses 11 through 22. See, verses 11, perhaps you caught it. Verses 11 and 12, he outlines what their life used to look like apart from Christ. In verse 11, he is very frank. He says, look, remember. He's calling them to to remember how their life used to be, perhaps as a way to keep them humble. He says, look, you Gentiles, you were called the uncircumcision by those who were called the circumcision, the Jews. You see, in the first century, and, and, and the history goes back further than that, that the Jews and the Gentiles were a deeply divided people. The Jews even resorted to derisive nicknames for the Gentiles. They called them the uncircumcision. Why is that? Well, the Jews, the circumcision was a mark of the covenant people of God. It was something that made them distinct. And so rather than that being a source of humility, which all of God's gifts should ultimately be to us, it became a source of pride, it became a source of division. You are not like us. You don't look like us. You don't have our family history. And the Jews and the Gentiles were separated. Paul then continues to tell of their plight in verse 12. And and these are pretty dramatic phrases here. He uses dark strokes to paint a picture of what their life was apart from Christ. He says that they were, most importantly and most tragically, separated, isolated from God. But also secondarily, and also very important, they were isolated from the people of God. He uses five phrases to unpack this. Check it out. Verse 12, they were separated from Christ. To be separated from Christ is to be separated from God. They had no hope of the Messiah. Number two, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They did not enjoy the privileges that came with being a citizen of Israel. They didn't have the rights and the privileges that those of Israel enjoyed. Number three, they were also, in addition to that, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. So God from beginning in Genesis, makes these covenants with his people, with Noah and Abraham and and Moses and David, and then this new covenant, all these promises that the Messiah is coming, that we can have a relationship with God, that we can have a new heart, that we can be completely forgiven of our sin, that we can walk in unbroken fellowship with God. All of these promises they know nothing about. And consequently, number four, they had no hope in the world. There was no confident expectation that things are really better than they seem. That the effects of the fall will not have the final say in this world, in our lives. They were without hope. And in summary, number five, they were without God in the world. See, this is a picture of everyone apart from the gospel. If you're in Christ this morning, if you would consider yourself a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, this is what you once were. And it's not good. This is not good news. And yet, verse 13, Paul says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I mean, there's such a a quick and drastic change in Paul's tone. He says, but now. It's it's, it's just like he did in verses 1 through 3 and then 4. He said, look, in 1 through 3, you were dead spiritually. You had no hope. You couldn't move to God an inch in and of yourself. But God, you didn't have to. But God came to you. In His grace, He saved you. Not because of what you've done. And now in this passage, he's saying, but now in Christ Jesus... This is no longer true of you. You've been brought near. You share in all that it means to be the people of God. I love, verse 13 reflects verse 4, and those two words, but God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that those two words summarize the gospel. But God. And now we have it again. But now, in Christ. Such a summary of what God has done for us through the cross. Every has changed I mean let the weight of the word of God fall on your hearts did you see all the language of separation in verse 12 you were alienated strangers separated without and then now God brings you near he reconciles you to himself and to his people how does he do this? He does it through the cross. He says, through the blood of Christ. This is why we say we are a community transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God did what we could never do by sending a son to live the life that we should have lived. We, none of us can live a perfect life before God. God's standard is holiness, and we are not holy. So God sends his Son to be perfectly holy for us, live the life we should have lived, die the death that we should have died, so that all who believe in him can become the righteousness of God. Paul is going to point to the cross time and time again in this passage. He's going to say, through the blood of Christ. He's going to say, in his flesh, referring to the cross. He's going to say, through the cross. The cross is central to the gospel. It is the gospel. And so the gospel saves us from spiritual isolation. And then number two, in verses 14 through 18, we find this, that the gospel creates a new community united in Christ. Paul's whole argument in verses 14 through 18 is that God has created a new spiritual community in Christ. Check it out with me. If you will, it says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. One of the key words that Paul uses to run this uh, thread of of unity, our unity in Christ, is the word peace. If you notice in, in verse 14, he says that Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our life. Jesus is our joy. Jesus is our peace. But then in verse 15, it says that Jesus not only is our peace, but he made peace. He made peace for us by his death on the cross. And then in verse 17, it says that he came and he preached peace. Peace to those who were far off from God and peace to those who were near. The gospel was a gospel and is a gospel of peace. And What then has happened in the gospel? What are the results of this newfound peace that we can experience? Well, he uses several key phrases. Number one, in verse 14, he says that he has made us both one. I want you to consider this. I mean, I hope that I really am praying, all right, that this passage will grip us as a church. We have to understand this. He has made us both one. You see, if we're being honest, Most of the time, we think about the Christian life as kind of what's in it for me. And we even conceive of salvation in these terms. We think about If you describe your salvation to someone, you would probably say something like this. I have been reconciled to God. Is this true? Absolutely it's true. We have, I have, individually, we have been reconciled to God. But... That's not all. That is not all that God has done for us in the gospel. You see, the thrust of verses 14 through 18 is not on how we as individuals relate to God, but it's how we as individuals relate to one another. And then how we together relate to God. We've been reconciled to God, yes, individually. And yes, salvation is intensely personal. I'm not saying that it's not. But what I'm saying is salvation is also corporate. We are then brought in to the people of God, collectively. He has made us both one. This points to the unity of the church. And this is the beauty of the gospel. I mean, the beauty of the gospel is that the work of Christ on the cross not only reconciles us to God, but it also reconciles us to one another. Just as much it reconciles us together. And you might be saying, Tanner, I mean, I've seen some of the people that come to Redemption Hill, and maybe some of the people that will come to Redemption Hill, and you know what? I don't want to be one with them. They don't look like me. They don't do the same things that I do they don't dress like I do that guy used to crack jokes on my mom in elementary school I don't want to be one with him well too bad you're one if you're both in Christ you're one you're united in him he goes on to say in verse 14 that he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see, Paul is pointing again to this, this separation between Jews and Gentiles. Probably here he's using a, a, a metaphorical term here for wall. Although some scholars think that this might be pointing to the wall in the temple that separated Jews and Gentiles. That's possible. I mean, certainly he's done both. He's, he's broken down this wall of hostility. And how has, he, how has he done it? He, it says that he did it by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That is to say that Jesus, all of the laws and commandments and ordinances that we, we find in the Mosaic Law, that he has nullified those. He's rendered them powerless. That they had no power to save someone of their sin. And even more specifically to this context, that that. In Christ his work on the cross now what is important is neither circumcision or uncircumcision we don't have to keep these ceremonial laws these the sacrificial system we no longer have to keep why because Jesus has fulfilled the law and he has freed us from the laws condemnation we can never keep the law perfectly but in Christ he has fulfilled it he has kept it for us and now we have this new law in him. It's like Paul says in Galatians 6.15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only a new creation. The defining characteristic of our lives is that we have been created by Christ and he has brought us together, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. And, And then this most radical statement in verse 15, he says that he has created in himself one man in place of the two. I want that just to to soak into our hearts this morning. He has created one man in place of the two. The church is a new humanity. We are one in him. So to understand this, it's not as if God takes the Gentiles and he makes some, you know, minor adjustments to the Gentiles, and then he takes the Jews and he you know, puts a few minor tweaks on the Jews so that he can kind of bring them together. It's something totally different than that. He makes them brand new. He makes them one new person. John Chrysostom was a 4th century preacher. He was actually John of Antioch. Chrysostom was his nickname because he was the golden mouth. He could preach. Much better than probably anybody you have on your pod. Cast today. And Chrysostom says that God is not just doing this, making kind of one greater so that they can be equal, but it's as if he takes a statue of silver and melts it down, and a statue of lead and melts it down, and then is created a statue of gold. This is what God has done for us in the gospel. We are one because of Christ. We share the same identity, the same faith, The same hope, the same direction and mission. Jesus is the basis of our fellowship. It's because of Christ. The most important thing about us is Christ, right? He defines our life. If we're in Christ, if we're to follow Him, then He defines us. He gives us meaning to life. He gives us direction in life. And so if we share Christ in common, then at some deep level we have all things in common. Take my community group, for example, all right? This is just a pretty practical example. I hang out in my community, I'm speaking of the men, okay, ladies, don't, don't, don't worry about it if you're in our community group, but, but the men, okay, are basically geeks and scientists, all right? In other words, they have brilliant computer knowledge, they know how to do all kinds of programming and design and and all this and so obviously i'm having a little fun here with, with my friends um and, and so, i mean that, that's just i mean i love i love those things and, I, and I'm, I, I i i benefit from their work all the time i'm sure but 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 that's not what i'm pursuing in life that's not my profession my passion i mean they could probably call me a nerd i'm sure because I did spend 24 of the 30 years of my life in school, so we do have probably something in common at those levels. But but you get the point, right? I mean, the point is not that we have all things in common. The point is that we have Christ in common, that he brings us together, that he gives us the ability to truly have fellowship with one another and to be motivated out of the gospel to love one another, serve one another, to bear one another's burdens. What else does it mean that He makes one man out of the two. And this is probably one of the most important things to my heart, and and that is this, that I think this passage gives us the best argument for diversity in the church. Diversity in the church. At Redemption Hill, we exist. Okay, so you, if, if this is not kind of like where you are, like please keep coming and maybe God will bring you there in line with this passage. But, but I mean, this is, this is who we are. We want Redemption Hill to be a thumbprint of our community. A thumbprint. So that means we will have not just a church full of people who look like me, who are young and white and, you know, you fill in the blank, jocks, I played ball back in the day, for those of you who don't know me. I was a, I was, I was a baller. God give me humility. Um, I can't ball anymore, so there's, there's the humility. I'm way out of shape. In the gospel, God brings diverse groups of people together. So we want people of ethnic diversity here at Redemption Hill. We want people from all nations here at Redemption Hill. We want the rich and the poor, the educated and the uneducated. It doesn't matter in Christ. When we gather to worship and we study the Word together and we pray together, it doesn't matter how many degrees that we have hanging on our wall. It doesn't matter the color of our skin. It doesn't matter how much was on the paycheck last week. Or maybe wasn't on the paycheck last week. What matters is Christ. That we belong together because of him. You see, in Christ, the language of us and them, us and them, is thrown out the window. It's gone. It has no place in the church. And here's the beautiful thing. The glory of God is displayed when people of radically different backgrounds can come together. I mean, where else is this happening? It's the manifold wisdom of God revealed now in his church. And so let's get practical. If you are young, do you want to see older people come to Redemption Hill? I mean, like people with some gray hair and maybe a few wrinkles? I mean, do you want want that? If you're a college student, do do you enjoy hanging out with families and children? I mean, are you willing to kind of get out of your college bubble and spend some time with people of a different life stage than you? If you're blessed financially, are you willing to associate and treat those who maybe aren't as blessed with the same love and the same joy that you know in Christ because you're one in Him? You see, we need to ask the question and answer the question, do we want Redemption Hill to be a diverse church? I mean, it seems like this is what the gospel does. I mean, if if our community is if, if there is diversity represented in our community, then we should strive to reach everyone in our community, right? So, so if, you, if you desire for Redemption Hill to be a, a diverse church, then let me ask you the question, what are you willing to do about it? Who will you bring to RHC, Redemption Hill Church? Who are you going to bring in to this group of Christ followers? See, Jesus takes all the things that divide us, and he crushes them in the cross. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ. This doesn't mean that we don't have distinctions, and you throw out all the other teaching in Scripture about you know, gender and roles and all this, but it means that we're essentially one. We're united in him. We're equal in him. So what are the results, then, of being a part of God's people? If, as verse 18 says, we through him have, been, have both access in one, one spirit to the Father, this Trinitarian formula we see it in 18 and in 22. If we have access together, then what are the results of being a part of God's people? Well, that brings us to the third point. The gospel brings great benefit for God's people. The gospel brings great benefit for God's people. Paul in verse 19 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's saying, consequently, as a result of the gospel and what Christ has done for us in the cross, some serious things are true of us. And what he does is he gives three images for the church. Number one, he says that God's people are citizens of the kingdom. No longer are we strangers and aliens, but we have unbelievable rights to approach God, to live under his rule, to experience all the blessings and privileges of what it means to be a citizen in his kingdom. So we are citizens of the kingdom of God. But then number two, and this is where I wanna spend the most time because it really gets at the heart of fellowship, that we belong to the household of God. We are members of the household of God. You See, last Sunday, we, as I mentioned, we looked at the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, and to fellowship. And just to kind of simplify, uh, what does fellowship get at it? It's just living life together in a deep, intentional, relational way as the church. I want you to listen to this quote from Jerry Bridges as he reflects on Acts chapter 2. He says this, Those first Christians... Of Acts 2, were not devoting themselves to social activities, but to a relationship. A relationship that consisted of sharing together the very life of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They understood that they had entered this relationship by faith in Jesus Christ, not by joining an organization. And they realized that their fellowship with God logically brought them into fellowship with one another. Through their union with Christ, they were formed into a spiritually organic community. We must grasp the idea that fellowship means belonging to one another in the body of Christ, along with all the privileges and responsibilities that such a relationship entails. So you say, Tanner, let's get practical here. I mean, okay, this this is good. I don't have a problem being in the family of God. We're a spiritual family. We consider each other brothers and sisters in Christ. So, so so what what can like how do we get there let me give you a couple just very practical and the, the ones really built on the other number one we spend time together right i mean a family is together a family lives under one roof a family is is, is sharing life together in, in 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 a variety of ways and so let me just ask you i mean are you trying to spend time with the people of redemption hill I mean, here's a very practical, and and, and if I were not, you know, Pastor Tanner, I would have the same struggle. So don't take this as kind of the holier-than-thou encouragement, all right? You can look at my track record back at my former church. But one very practical thing that we can do is get to the service a little early on Sunday. Get here at 1015. Get here at 1020. We got the refreshments out, man. People, it's a great opportunity just to get to know people, to get to know one another, catch up on what's going on in life. Another... Option related that is to stay after the service. Don't rush out, just hang around for a few. All right? And today is like definitely going to be, you know, I know people are just going to hang out just for a few minutes anyway. Right? No, no, to, to, to hang out after the service, even to maybe grab lunch together after the service so that we can spend time together like family. See, the goal is to cut through the superficiality that exists so often in the church today. Oh yeah, I go to the church, that person, what about their life, what about their kids, what about their family, are they, are, they, are they doing well, are they struggling? Oh, they're good. How you doing? I'm fine. They're fine. Do we really know? We have to spend time together. But then this is perhaps the most practical. I love talking about this. We have to live out the one another commands of Scripture. God gives us so many commands. These are not suggestions. These are commands for us to fulfill together with one another. So in the scripture, check this out. There are going to be a lot up here on the screen. We have commands to love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, teach one another, admonish one another, offer hospitality to one another we have commands to pray for one another, rejoice with one another, weep with one another, care for one another, honor one another, greet one another, be kind to one another, confess your sins to one another. How on earth are you gonna do this on your own? If you're not committed to a church, if you're not committed in a regular part and an active part of a church, I would submit to you that it is going to be incredibly difficult to live this out in a deep, real, below-the-surface kind of way. Our faith is one of action, and we can't assume that we will have fellowship just because we attend the same place, the same gathering on a Sunday morning. It has to go beyond that. So, in light of these truths, let me ask you. Well, let me let me back up and get ahead of myself. The third image there is that the church is a holy temple. That that we are being built together. Another picture of unity that we're being built together on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. Another way to say the truths of God, the word of God, what Christ has handed down, all of the Old Testament, the New Testament. That's the apostles' teaching. Christ Himself being the cornerstone; He's the foundation of it all. So, this is the third picture of the church that Paul gives, but, but now, in light of these truths, let me ask you, how, how will you respond? Is it that you will continue coming on Sundays? I hope so, all right? You're invited back next week, and the week after that, and the month after that, and the year after that. We want you back. We want to do this thing together, so that's a great first step. Just continue coming on Sundays, but let me throw a couple others out there. Um, will you get involved in a community group? So again, if, if this is a picture of what the church is to look like, then the assumption is that we probably to just be together one time a week for like an hour and a half total, that's probably not going to really foster what this maybe can and should look like. And so to that end, we are multiplying a community group in the fall, we're, we're creating more options. As more people get involved, we'll continue multiplying more and more and more. It's just a matter of time. So I understand, you know, some of you have busy schedules or some conflicts and you haven't been able to get involved yet, but but we're trying to make it more accessible to you. So perhaps some of you can be praying about, man, can I get involved in a community group? Become a regular part. Go deeper relationally. Another option is to pursue church membership. We're going to talk more about that next week. We're finally getting to a place as a church where we're saying, hey, we collectively believe the same things, are about the same direction and mission. We want to be in this thing together. And so some of you, I'm sure, will want to pursue church membership. Hopefully that's most of you. Um, and, then, and then there's some other steps as well, like we've already talked about. And, of course, we wouldn't mind if it were all of the above. So I know I say this and kind of joke to make it a little lighthearted, but, but, but really, really, I mean, how will you respond if this is the picture of the church? My encouragement is to take a step. Just take a step. If you've never been to a community visit a community one time. If you are, have never been a member of a church, just come to a, cl- a membership class. We're going to call them Connections class. Take a step to, to understand at least what it means to be a member of a church. You see, we're in this thing together. And this church will only thrive when all of us collectively get this and strive for this. It can't be 10 out of 60 or 70 of us. It it needs to be 50 to 60 to 65 out of 70 of us. I mean, that's when the church, that's when this church will really thrive for the glory of God. And that is when we will be in a position to, as Bridges said, reflect, display the perfections of God to a watching world. That is when, as Paul says in Ephesians 3.10, the manifold wisdom of God will be on display as the church lives out all of the implications of what it means to be the church. So here's three final questions for you, and then I'm going to pray. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand what he's done for us on the cross? I mean, perhaps some of you are exploring Christianity. You're not so sure about, you know, Is Jesus God? Did he really die on the cross? Was he really raised? If all those things are true, then you probably better buy in like the rest of us. We want want to explore that with you. But most of us here probably are here because we're followers of Christ. Let me ask you, do you love Jesus? If so, do you love what he loves? Because Jesus loves his church. Ephesians 5.25 says that Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. He died for his people. Let's love the church. Let's love one another. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for our time this morning. Thank you so much for the richness of your word. God, I pray that we would, as a growing, as a forming church, that you would work these truths deep into our hearts, and that we would buy in, that we would receive your truth, and that we would seek to really live life together as a community of people who have been transformed by your great and glorious gospel. Lord, you know each of our needs. You know where we are and where we need to be. And so, Father, it's, it's our prayer today that you would help us to live out all of the implications of what it means to be one in you by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.